Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, the host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, we're speaking with Gerald Walker, the author of a provocative and exciting new memoir entitled Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption. Street Shadows was published by Bantam Books in 2010. Such varied and well-known authors as Marilyn Robinson, author of Gilead and Home, Shelby Steele, of the content of our character, James Allen McPherson, Robert Atwin, and Nikki Giovanni have all praised this wonderful book. As you listen in to Gerald's and my discussion about the contents of his book, about his journey as a writer, and even as a college professor, you'll get to see just why these authors praised him. Please, listen in. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Rashawn. How are you? Today, we're speaking with Gerald Walker, the author of a provocative and exciting new memoir entitled Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption. Gerald Walker is currently an associate professor and interim chair of English at Emerson College. A graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, Gerald Walker has published in magazines such as Creative Nonfiction, the Missouri Review, the Harvard Review, Mother Jones, the Iowa Review, and the Oxford American. And he has been widely anthologized, including multiple times in the best American essays. Today, we're speaking with Walker about his memoir, Street Shadows, published by Bantam Books in 2010. And we'd like to welcome him to the show today. Gerald, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um I was born and raised in Chicago of um, blind parents. Both my parents uh, were sightless. My dad lost his sight when he was 12, and my mom uh, lost her sight in one eye when she was a child, no more than one, I think, from conjunctivitis. And she lost the um, other eye to an accident when she was nine. Um, I have a twin brother, five other siblings, we were raised in a housing project on the south, well, the west side of Chicago first, and then we moved to the south side of Chicago. And we were raised in a doomsday religious cult in which we were told uh, at various times that the world was coming to an end, and so we needed to prepare ourselves for that, uh, although it never happened. Mm. Just a, a little bit, a sample of um, kind of um, nuttiness of my life. And uh, some of these experiences are also detailed in your in your memoir. Can you right. tell us how you um, how you came to write this memoir? Uh, it started with me writing an an essay. I wrote an essay about one of my professors uh, from the Writers Workshop at Iowa, James McPherson, and it was published in the Iowa Review and then later anthologized in Best American Essays. And um, I wrote a few more essays about various experiences and 
someone saw one of my pieces that I had published in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, its title was Visible Man, uh, a play on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And the person who saw the piece contacted me, asked if I had an agent. I said no. He got me in contact with someone who read a few of my essays and said, um, we can't sell essays. However, we can sell a memoir. Can you, can you shape your pieces into a book-long narrative? And I agreed that I could, I could give it a shot, and so I did. And when I had about 100 pages, he shopped it around, and um, Bantam picked it up. Very nice. Now, usually, towards the end of the interview, we ask authors if they can um, share a little bit from their book. But I'm wondering if you can share some of your writing earlier in the interview, perhaps now, because sure. it's it's an exquisitely written narrative. It's um, it it it's it it uh, jumps between time and alternating chapters uh, from your progress, and then goes back to your um, adolescence and and growing up. But the writing, I think, is 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 very excellent. So if you could just share something with us right away, that would be nice. Sure, I, I'll, I will do that, and I'll, I'll preface it to say that um, the chapters do, in fact, alternate from my um, street life to my non-street life, which is to say, the life I led after leaving the uh, life of petty crime that I had chosen for myself when I was when I was fourteen. So, um, and I guess I could have mentioned that in the bio of myself, that I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old, and at the encouragement of one of my brothers, um, got involved in drugs and gangs and alcohol, and um, was lost for many, many years. And the chapter I'll read now is very brief. Uh, It takes place when I'm about 17 years old. It's called The Second Act. We hadn't intended to rob her, but the opportunity was there. An elderly woman carrying a grocery bag into her house, while two more bags sat in the open trunk of her car. Steve grabbed one and I grabbed the other. We sprinted for a block and then jogged the rest of the way to my house to assess our booty. Eight cans of tomato soup, two loaves of bread, 24 ounces of orange-flavored Metamucil, eight pounds of chicken fryers, lard, a bag of chips, and a pair of Dr. Show's inserts. I opened the chips. Steve put the inserts in his shoes. The elderly lady, I assumed, called the police. Or maybe she called God. I imagined her standing by her empty trunk with her hands raised toward the sky, asking that the robbers be brought to justice. But I knew the justice she sought already awaited me. I had heard my parents and various ministers repeatedly speak of the lake of fire, and yet such talk had not deterred me from seeking my place there. Eternal damnation, the way I saw it, would simply be the second act, a continuation of the life I already led, day after day filled with debauchery and nights with more of the same. The lake of fire did not concern me, so I wasn't sure what it was that made me say we should return the groceries. Steve was appalled. You want to do what? Return the groceries, I repeated. Let's take them back. A smirk spread on his face. What's wrong with you, feeling bad for the little old lady? I ignored him. Maybe you'd like to take her some flowers, too. He began using a whiny voice, mimicking a bratty child. Here, little old lady, 
I brought you your chicken and some roses. I took my razor out of my sock and pointed it at his neck. His smirk faded. Hey, hey, don't, don't play with that thing, he said, a statement of formality because he knew I wasn't playing. I had a big problem with being teased and everybody knew it. And I'd been drinking. I backed him toward the door. As soon as he stepped outside, he ran, and I ran after him, the razor still in my hand, even though it was midday and someone could see me. But the streets were deserted, as were the backyards and alleys we zigzagged through before I let him go. I tucked the razor back into my sock and went home to get the groceries. The old lady's street was as empty as mine had been. Her car was still parked in front of her house. Only the trunk was closed now. So was her front door. The windows that flanked it were opened a few inches and guarded by burglar bars. I climbed the stairs to her porch, planning to ring the bell and flee, leaving the groceries for her discovery. But as I was about to set them down, the door opened. The old lady stood before me now, looking confused. I, 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 I saw someone take these from your car, I stammered. Some, some kid, a stupid teenager. I chased him and got them back for you. She joined me on the porch. I held out the bags for her. As she took them, our hands briefly touched. God bless you, she said. But I didn't hear her, not for many years. Very nice. Very, very beautiful. I, I enjoyed that um, that chapter in the book, uh, as well as uh, many others. What uh, What do you think is 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 underneath this chapter as a writer. In, in other words, why did you write this? Um, and let me tell you what's what's prompting this question. This this chapter for me exemplifies a lot of the ambivalence um, that pervades the, the memoir for me. There's ambivalence about religion, which clearly is evident in this chapter. Um, a thug with a conscience, for, in, for instance. There's ambivalence about about race and, and racism. Um, uh, there's some ambivalence early on about uh, even uh, education and uh, the pursuit of it. So it, it, in this chapter, uh, why this one and what's, what's underneath it? Uh, ambivalence. <laughs> I, 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 uh, the, I, I was probably the most unfit uh, street in the history of um, ghettos, and um, I just I wasn't it wasn't a life that I was ever comfortable with, and I wasn't cut out for it, and that shows uh, throughout the book when I uh, attempt to do things uh, that I've been encouraged to do that uh, street people are supposed to do, and yet having been raised in a very religious family, and uh, having had my parents instill in me pretty strong um, moral values, uh, it, was, it was difficult for me to reconcile the life I was leading with the teachings that I had consumed uh, as a kid. And so even though I did what I was supposed to do um, as far as being a hoodlum, which is to take the groceries, uh, the, the underlying guilt uh, consumed me and I, and I couldn't bring myself to carry it through. Mm-hmm. And, and even if just going back with I'm sorry, uh, with the, the title, the second act, uh, it's kind of a metaphor for the entire book, which didn't occur to me until much later after I had written it. But the, 
book is really about the second act, that even though you do something uh, that may be wrong, it's not necessarily the end of the story. And so for me, the taking of the groceries uh, is much less significant than the return of the groceries, and it's that second act uh, that truly counts. Wow, nice. This, this, this section ends with a sentence that says, but I didn't hear her not for many years, and and that refers to when she said, God bless you. And I was was eagerly waiting to find out when that resonance dawned on you in the later chapters, but I I don't seem to have uh, come to it. Is it something personal uh, that you didn't include in a chapter that that made you hear those words, God bless you? You know, when when I heard those words in the writing of that chapter, uh, I remembered. I remembered um, when I got to the final scene in that. Uh, I didn't remember that sentence that she had said that to me when I started writing this chapter. It wasn't until I got to the end of the piece that I recalled her saying that to me. Mm-hmm. I had only until that point remembered returning the groceries, and but it hit me, and I wrote it. And can you tell us about the um, memoirs memory? Um, I was struck by the author's note at the beginning in which you talk about um, having misremembered your brother Tim um, mm-hmm. being at a at a birthday party and then seeing a photograph that uh, contradicted what you what you had remembered and so um, you uh, made that that sort of correction. Can you tell us about that about the act of uh, remembering and and writing this story and trying to be um, factual, if that in, indeed was your impulse. Well, my impulse was, in fact, to be as factual as I possibly could be. Um, but as I, I teach memoir writing and um, essay writing, and what I try to um, explain to my students is that um, what we do as memoirists is to reconstruct, um, but it's not a recording. So I can't, with complete certainty, say that when I was 10 years old, my mother told me to put down that blue hat. But I, I can remember that incident to the best of my ability. And readers of memoir enter a pact with writers of memoir in which they recognize that there may be some uh, errors in memory, but that the writer is giving a good faith effort to recall things to the best of their ability. So as I I wrote the chapter, um, the initial chapter about my brother, and I had him at a party, and I published that excerpt, and so I was mortified when I discovered that he wasn't at the party, and I thought, oh my God, people are going to think I'm James Fry, I'm making all this stuff up, you know, and I, I didn't know what to do. And so, um, so what my goal was to not have... Uh, one error or a few errors in memory throw the whole book into question. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I came across a fact that conflicted with my memory, I went with the fact. But other than that, I went with the truth of what my memory uh, is, and I think that that is pretty much all that a memoirist can do. Mm-hmm. W- when I read that, I, I instantly entered into a writer's debate, and I was thinking... Um, well, you know, in some ways, you know, um, Gerald Walker isn't responsible if if he said that that Tim was 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 not at the party because, in a literary sense, 
Tim could have been absent, right? Even though he was fully physically present. Um, mm-hmm. You know, thinking about um, your brother, Tim, and uh, some of the circumstances of his life, I could see why someone would, a writer um, or someone um, um, engaging in creative writing could say that the person was not there. Um, go ahead. No, I, I, so what I do when my students ask me, well, what is the difference between fact and truth? And um, should one be considered more important than the other? I think that these are often personal um, questions that need to be answered by the writer. I, I would never tell one of my students um, that they should not write their truth or, in fact, that they should put fact over their truth. I think that each person has to make their own call, and I make no judgments about that. But I do recognize that um, truth has its place, uh, and sometimes that place is at a higher level than fact. Mm-hmm. Tell us something about um, about the book. What 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 drives it? Um, what you consider the 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 plot to to be, um, and what you uh, would like to see readers notice. I, the thing about the book that uh, I I think works well is the fact that the chapters do alternate. So it opens when I'm 21 years old and I am just about to purchase drugs from a friend of mine who I later discover, in fact, I I do purchase drugs from him, and then I find out a short time later that he was murdered at the very place where I uh, had purchased drugs. And it really shakes me up and makes me recognize that my life is headed uh, to the same end unless I do something. And so the next chapter is me being 14 years old prior to being corrupted by the street life. And then I go back to being an adult, going to community college, and then I'm back as a, as a teenager going deeper and deeper into the streets. And what I intended to do with this was to create a sort of tension between uh, my current life, which is the life of someone who's bound to go to college and become a writer, versus the life of someone who seems to be headed to prison or an early grave. And the friction of these lives, uh, I think, moves the plot forward. And it also stresses what I'm trying to get across with the title, that even though you move away from these past experiences, you never really move away from them. They follow you. And even though I am now, you know, 47 years old, uh, I still have very vivid memories of being a 17-year-old street thug. And sometimes those experiences come to play in my current life in ways that are helpful and sometimes in ways that are harmful, but they're always with me. Mm-hmm. And one way, in, in one episode, one chapter in which what you just said is exemplified is when you're driving in the car with your um, uh, son and your wife, <laughs> and uh, you're driving to Bridgewater, and uh, there's a car behind you, a, a, a truck, and uh, and there's a white man driving, and and something in you says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let this guy win on the road. Uh, and in fact, he's trying to alert you to the fact that your washer might be um, ready to fall uh, off the truck. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one time when the memories are hurtful <laughs> because having been raised in a community where the prevailing belief about whites was that they were evil across the board. Um, I didn't get that from my parents, 
but I did get it from the community. And so uh, you, you, you're filled with these stereotypical views that are difficult to shake. And when you're driving late at night through a strange land and a white guy is, is, is uh, <laughs> trying to, it seems, run you off the road, you can't help but tap into the, uh, the, the conscious of your, your, your youth where something like that is a danger sign. Mm-hmm. Now I want to enter into what I call a series of challenging questions for you. Um, sure. You know that any any writer, any memoirist who's who's read, I think, and, and read critically um, gets these questions. And, and one of them uh, for me is, so you decided to stop using drugs around the age of 24? At, about, 21, 21. about about twenty one, and so I wonder in in relationship to let's say your brother Timmy, um, uh, Jimmy, your your brother, um, and and people who are in the hood, some of the names that you mentioned, Steve, Greg, uh, mm-hmm. etc. Could your um, foray or experimentation in drugs be Consider a little bit em- embellished in this tax. Oh, absolutely not. Um, and I don't. You know, it's funny when people read the book. People who have met me uh, as I am now, they have a very difficult time reconciling my youth with the current me. And I don't know necessarily why that is, but um, there's no embellishment uh, in in the text, and I. I don't know why uh, anyone would even think that. I don't, well, I've not had anybody suggest that to me. So, well, in some ways, in some ways, your uh, wife did early on in in your meeting with her. She she was a little shocked when you <laughs> at least you uh, retell that story, and she's like, "Really? Was uh, how is that so?" When when you first meet her at at UIC in the summer program, right? She, well, yeah, and I guess because you don't. Not many people are sitting on the college campus who have uh, had cocaine addictions and uh, been arrested for, you know, car theft and um, had lots of friends gunned down. Um, it's, it's you don't you don't get there from from that background very often. So it's kind of a surprising thing. And I, I think also the fact that I uh, have been um, largely, um, I would probably say, a dork. <laughs> that it, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not what you would expect <laughs> to see when you, you know, you think street stuff. I'm probably not the uh, the image that comes to mind, which is why, again, I was so unfit for that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, being being addicted to cocaine is, is no joke, and not many people can fake that, or um, or, or uh, I think embellish that lifestyle and do it successfully unless they know a great deal about it. Mm-hmm. And there was an episode um, in which you were at the writer's workshop. You were in um, James McPherson's class, and you had written about your um, past, or at least you had you had written a, a story in which you had drawn from um, your past in the ghetto and so forth. And uh, McPherson uh, came into the class and uh, uttered some prefatory words about the story before it was workshopped, that you didn't like. Um, right. Can you tell us about that? 
Well, McPherson, uh, when I was about to have my one of my short stories workshopped, McPherson prefaced the workshop by saying, many blacks uh, write, well, he was in fact referring to rappers, gangster rappers, that they rap about ghettos and they paint this portrait of themselves as being these extremely hard people who have had these lives of uh, difficulty in inner cities, and yet they have no personal experience with that life. That's simply a facade that they use to uh, sell records. And in the process of doing so, they perpetuate the myth of a certain type of uh, uh, black life and culture. And McPherson suspected or thought, believed, that I was doing the same thing. Uh, he felt that not because I gave away some you know, clue that, that you know, I was making this stuff up, um, he felt it because uh, my craft, I mean, I, I had a failure of craft. And so my stories lacked, the characters lacked a certain kind of uh, depth and range. And so anyone writing about something with which they're not familiar, that's going to be the result. And he confused my uh, crudeness as a writer with people who fabricate certain backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so when he thought he was calling me out by saying, look, I know you were raised in, you know, suburban America, um, he was wrong. I was, in fact, born in a housing project and lived in some pretty scary places. But I was simply a bad writer. And we we needed to um, sit and have a talk and, and come to terms about what was happening. Mm-hmm. There were certain moments in reading the memoir that I thought about words from James Baldwin. Um, Baldwin has said, and um, I'm going to summarize crudely, uh, that some of his um, interactions in Harlem with people of different races um, uh, disrupted, in a good way, um, stereotypes about um, whites and blacks, and and he was happy for that. There were there are instances in in your memoir in which uh, you detail a disruption that happens to you about uh, racial stereotypes about whites and and about blacks. For instance, going to um, Zimbabwe um, uh, on a research trip and uh, the racial racial classification system there and how you were classified as colored, which was different from white and black, but treated better by whites and worse by blacks. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and a little bit about your own racial politics um, in America now. Right. There's a, um, a mythology in black communities about Africa being the motherland and the homeland and um, if we had only not been snatched from that place, we would have had perfect lives, or something to that effect. But many blacks were raised believing that this is, in fact, our, uh, our homeland and our culture, and that if we should ever get a chance to go back, uh, everything will fall into place as if we'd never left, and we'd be greeted as uh, returning heroes and and everything would be perfect. So I um, I assumed that that would be the case when I got a chance to go to Zimbabwe with my wife, who was doing dissertation field research in uh, Zimbabwe. And uh, when I arrived, uh, rather than being uh, greeted as a returning hero, 
I was I was scorned in a way that I could not comprehend. And then I later found out that that, that was because uh, the indigenous people of Zimbabwe did not recognize me as a black person. They saw me as a colored, which is to say a person of mixed ancestry. And uh, that was news to me because my mother's black, my father's black, and there are black walkers as far as the uh, ancestral trees uh, grow. And yet I was being told in a matter of an instant that my racial background was not what I thought it to be. And that was a pretty unsettling moment for me because it explained in a way that nothing else could for me that race was uh, fluid and that the meanings attached to them were not, in fact, fixed. And in, 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 in reality, they were social constructs with little meaning or that the meanings could change depending on the circumstances and the region uh, in the world you happen to be. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. And uh, I found myself in this culture feeling very alienated from it and feeling very much a foreigner and recognizing that the true homeland, for me at least, was on American soil. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, a, was a hard one lesson. And not one that many people wanted to hear when I returned. <laughs> mm-hmm. I came back and I told my, my family that story, and uh, they were devastated. And I, in hindsight, I, I sort of wish that I had not relayed that story because they were so hopeful about what this trip would mean for me and what it would mean for them. And I, in essence, came down from the mountaintop to say, God isn't up there. It's just a, it's just a burning bush. Mm-hmm. And that's not what people wanted to hear. And, I, and maybe that, maybe I shouldn't have been the messenger of it. Uh, let me ask you whether or not that is uniformly true uh, among the family members. Uh, and I'm, I'm really curious about this because you portray um, your brother Tommy as a staunch conservative, um, at least later later in the book, he's represented as a, as a Reagan voting staunch conservative and anti-victimologist um, mm-hmm. who might actually, uh, I would imagine, uh, agree with that um, with that uh, recognition that you you came back with. Well, he said, "I told you." <laughs> I mean, that was the, the first word that came out of his mouth was "see." Uh, so there was <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't uniform disappointment. Uh, because, you know, it's, in most families, the political view, views can be wide-ranging. Uh, so Tommy never bought into the African mythology. My sister Linda, uh, who was in the habit of wearing clothes that she felt were African and having masks on her walls that she thought were authentic African artifacts, uh, she was devastated. So the response was, was different for different people. But um, my family is... We have uh, a wide range of views about race and politics. Mm-hmm. As reading the book, I had a I had a a a hard time placing your specific racial politics, as I am inclined to to try to do. I should warn you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, hmm. In some places, this guy sounds like Shelby Steele. <laughs> and, and and so I I was eager 
to ask you about what your particular view of race and, and race relations and racial politics are now. Yeah, I don't know how to um, answer that. That's almost, a, for me, a, a, a case-by-case question instead of a broad view. But I, I mean, I, I would say generally that um, I, I do agree with Dill on, on many fronts. Um, I agree with, with Al Sharpton on many fronts. It really depends on what the situation is. But I, I am a believer in, um, in African Americans uh, having all of what we need to succeed um, before us now uh, in many instances. And I, I'm not a person who likes to claim victimhood uh, on any occasion, even, in fact, when <laughs> I may secretly know that I've been victimized. Um, it's not something that I will uh, say readily. And um, so I wouldn't describe myself as a conservative. I wouldn't describe myself as a liberal. I simply am a case-by-case basis Negro. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you... Um, talk about your um, your your family history and growing up with two parents who were blind. Right. Uh, how was that? I thought it was great until I was about seven or eight when someone uh, in in school explained to me that my parents were blind. But I didn't I didn't know. They just seemed quite normal to me. And I guess in some ways, being raised with a certain thing your whole life. Um, it's, it's not a big deal. They didn't go out of their way to say we can't see. They simply did things um, with, with hands and, and, and by hearing. Uh, that seemed normal to me. But when I was a kid in elementary school, t- kids started teasing me, saying, you know, you've got these weird parents. They're blind. They can't see. And I said, what are you talking about? My parents, my parents are fine. And I remember going home one day and saying, people are lying about you. They're saying you can't see. <laughs> and my parents said, well, Sit down, Jerry. <laughs> and they had to sort of explain to me that that, that was, in fact. So it, it was normal, but it wasn't until um, neighbors and, and classmates and everyone started pointing out the differences um, between my family and, and their family uh, with the two buying parents, the fact that we went to um, a very peculiar church that didn't celebrate Christmas or birthdays or Halloween or any of those things. And... Um, uh, that was a difficult thing for me to adjust to when I got older, because as you reach your teenage years, you start becoming super self-conscious anyway, and then add on top of that that you have blind parents who are part of a religious doomsday cult. Uh, it's not not good for the confidence of a a young man. Mm-hmm. And yet, your parents, um, uh, despite being blind, your father uh, acquired a a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and 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 was in pursuit of a PhD. He considered it, but um, family obligations prevented him from going for it. But he did he did do that, yes. And you acknowledge your mother as having read uh, at least part, if not the entire manuscript of this memoir. I I read each one to her as I wrote it. Okay. <laughs> now you. Your background is you were um, born and raised in Chicago. Um, you spent some time in Iowa City, um, having finished um, your undergraduate degree at the University of Iowa and um, matriculated through the um, famous Iowa's Writers Workshop. And I, too, 
<laughs> I'm from Chicago. Uh, I'm from the west side. You're from the south side. So we're rivals. Okay. And I spent some time in Iowa City, um, at least uh, seven years. And throughout the book, you seem to portray Iowa City as, I should say, more open-minded and accepting and liberal than I would ever um, portray it. And in fact, you you um, juxtapose it to Bridgewater, Massachusetts, in at least one paragraph, um, saying that um, uh, that there were these um, high-priced used bookstores and quaint cafes and pl- a place where people spoke the um, the uh, Queen's English. And I'm wondering. Uh, <laughs> do you still have that perception of Iowa City? I, I actually like it even more now. Um, I was I was back in in last April. I spent a week in Iowa City teaching a few graduate classes, and um, I think it's a great city. I, w- I would move back to Iowa City tomorrow if I had the opportunity to do so. So I, I think maybe you were hanging out in the bad neighborhoods. <laughs> Uh, that bad neighborhood would be the university campus and the surrounding <laughs> area. No, but I also mentioned in the book that I did. I had a couple of incidents uh, on campus that uh, weren't weren't positive, but by and large, uh, what I really liked about the city was that it was, in fact, and still is a mecca for the arts. And there are people who are very liberal-minded. I think the difficulties I had when I had them, and they were not not plentiful. And this is also in comparison to um, my experiences in Chicago, where the racism was much more overt. Um, I had difficulty with college students, these kids who were from many different places. But with the townspeople, I I, I thought it was a very, very welcoming community. Mm-hmm. Well, we, I think we both agree that, that Perry Lights, uh, Prairie Lights, um, is, mm-hmm. a, is, a, is a beacon for writers and is uh, one of the best uh, bookstores uh, in America, I think. Yep, I agree. Now, I was interested also in um, an episode in which you write about in the book, um, having just arrived at the University of Iowa's campus as an undergraduate, you're sitting in the cafeteria eating. There is a group of African-Americans at a small table. Um, You describe it as being 12 students at a table fit for four and more arriving. Some um, uh, ambassadors from the table come over and invite you to join them, and and you quip, um, what for, to break a, a, a Guinness record? Right. Now, I want to juxtapose that scene with one that happens later in which two white students mm-hmm. by the name of Aaron and Charles Right. Um, go on a um, unusual quest to find you, to seek you out, to to have beers with them. And when they come to your dorm room, you readily accept, although you dismissed the African-American students when they invited you. Right. Well, and here's, here's why. The African-Americans recruited me on the basis of skin, whereas the white kids recruited, recruited me on the basis of uh, my chosen profession. So I, 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 wasn't, I didn't go to the University of Iowa to be a race. I went there to be a writer. So whoever happened to knock on my door seeking me because I was a writer, I would have welcomed. But I didn't need 
after being raised in a uh, hyper-racial environment my entire life, to move to Iowa City and be recruited on the basis of uh, my skin color. Mm-hmm. So neither one, as far as I'm concerned, neither neither incident had anything to do with uh, anything other than me identifying myself primarily as a writer before all else, because that was why I was in town. Although one reader might um, surmise that the African-American students didn't get a chance to um, know you as a writer because because they were um, because the invitation was declined. Well, but but the in- invitation was was offered for one reason. They didn't come in to the table to say, "Are you what? What are you studying? Uh, what? Why are you here?" Or any of that. There was only one common denominator, and that was our skin color. And another factor um, is that. I was probably 10 years older than all of them. I was 27 years old when I was an undergrad at Iowa. They were 18 and 19 years old. So I didn't, I didn't need that kind of um, companionship to help me get through being a student at the university. I didn't even want to be in the dorms at all. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, the, the bonds that I was seeking at that point uh, were based on writing and the craft of writing, and that is the only relationship I was interested in, regardless of the race of uh, the people I encountered. Can you uh, talk about your first writing professor, Professor uh, Homewood, um, the uh, person who um, encouraged you, who brought you to the University of Iowa, in fact, um, who envisioned your future in the Writer's Workshop and as a uh, acclaimed uh, author? Um, when I started school, I was 24 years old when I went back to school, a community college, and I had no idea what I wanted to uh, do or be, and I took classes randomly, and I happened upon a creative writing course, met a man by the name of Professor Homewood who saw talent uh, in me and suggested I go to the Writer's Workshop at Iowa. And it, I'd never heard of the Writer's Workshop, um, but he, uh, the prospect intrigued me. And so I worked with him for two years, and he took me to see the campus. And uh, I saw the tuition and realized that I could never pay that uh, on my own, and he offered to pay my undergraduate tuition. And once I transferred, he did, in fact, pick up the tab for my remaining two years, or a good portion of it, uh, the remaining two years of my undergraduate degree. And there are more um, instances than just uh, one uh, in which your book is um, alludes to um, Ralph Ellison's classic, The Invisible Man. I think that the um, uh, homoerotic innuendo um, in which your first girlfriend alerted you to um, in, in relationship to Professor Homewood is is one instance um, that that Ellison's Invisible Invisible Man is alluded to. Um, did you ever figure that figure out what what that was all about? You seem to at the end of the the section seduced um, uh, to not um, to make it a non matter that Professor Homewood might be homosexual. Oh, I knew he was. Um, and it was a non-matter for me. Uh, the only thing that ever concerned me was that he 
was uh, falsifying his belief about my talent for sexual purposes. Uh, I didn't care about his orientation, but I didn't want to be being used and to shape my career toward being a writer if I had no talent, and this was simply his way of trying to seduce me. That was my primary concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, when I saw his response to him realizing that I had made that connection, um, and he was devastated by it, that was enough for me to recognize that I was wrong. That he, while being gay, uh, did in fact have faith in my writing ability, and I had to go in faith that that was his is only concern for me, and it turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a another chapter in which you um, explicitly um, allude to Ellison, and that chapter is called Visible Man, in which you're talking about being a faculty member and being invited to um, various black functions and being confronted about whether or not you would attend these functions by other uh, African-American colleagues. Well, they weren't black functions, broadly speaking. Specifically, one was Kwanzaa, uh, and Kwanzaa's emphasis on Africa with me having had the experience they had in Zimbabwe uh, just simply didn't appeal to me. Uh, On the other hand, uh, I am a huge fan of Martin Luther King Jr., and I would never miss a celebration in his honor. So again, these things for me are on a case-by-case basis, and they have very specific uh, connections to my life experience. And what would you say is the role of uh, performance in racial identity? And I'm I'm thinking of two particular instances in the book, one in which um, you're having a conversation with um, your girlfriend and now wife, Brenda, and you're talking about having gone through these various incarnations of donning particular outfits to fit in when you were a medical student and um, sometimes in school. And then um, you equate that with um, Brenda's own um, racial ambiguity and in, 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 in being identified as black sometimes, identified as white and other ethnicities, Indian, Pakistani, Moroccan, etc., What's, what's the role of performance in racial identity and in the construction even of this text? Um, I forgot who's, who first coined the phrase wearing the mask, uh, but African Americans have to be quite versed in moving through different societies and situations and cultures. And in order to do that successfully, you have to be able to sort of shape yourself depending upon the situation. And uh, me being raised... Uh, on the south side of Chicago, and when my neighborhood went from uh, being kind of a middle-class community to a a lower-class, dangerous community, uh, you had to adjust. And one of the reasons why my brother Tim introduced me to the street life was because he felt I needed to adjust to the changing neighborhood. And when I uh, moved out of that neighborhood into, let's say, the University of Iowa, uh, an academic setting, I needed to adjust to that environment. And then becoming an academic I had to adjust to that environment. And so blacks are constantly being chameleons, so to speak, depending on the situation, uh, which is the easy part. The difficult part is not losing yourself and knowing who you are beneath the different masks you need to wear for certain situations. 
were there any discoveries that you made um, about yourself uh, as you wrote this text or maybe as a writer? Um, let's see, discoveries about myself. Uh, what I, one of the things that I discovered in the course of writing the book is that the book ended up being a lot less about me than about the people I have met in my life who have shaped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the writer Russell Baker mentioned that he wrote his memoir to pay tribute to important people in his life. And I didn't set out to do that, but ultimately that's, that's what happened. And the book ends up being a tribute um, to a lot of teachers, my parents, uh, a lot of friends uh, that I've met over the course of my life who um, sort of moved me along and uh, got me to where I am. And would you say that's also a, a writerly discovery? I, I, I think so, it is, because uh, for memoir, memoirists in particular, people think that we are self-centered and um, solely interested in telling stories about ourselves. But the more I try to write about myself, the more I write about something outside of me, at least if I'm doing it well. My pieces never end up being about me. They end up being about something uh, much bigger than me and much more important than me. And you know what? I I think that's one of the uh, most brilliant aspects about this book, the fact that you um, detail so many different characters, your family, people you've met um, in school, your your friends in the hood, uh, your professors, etc. And yet those profiles um, reflect largely uh, on the memoir, on the, on the person who's writing the memoir. I, I felt at the conclusion of the text that um, I got a, a really good um, glimpse into who Gerald, Gerald Walker wanted um, to to present himself to be in this book through that, through the craft of, of talking about so many other different people. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear it worked out that way for you. Well, you know, I was it, it, in connection with that, I was thinking about and uh, uh, Professor Homewood's first um, uh, instructional insight uh, that you detail the objective correlative. And um, at the end of the book, I would I I thought that. Um, the way in which you saw and perceived other people, in effect, was a sort of meta-objective correlative um, uh, in a way in which it reflected on you as a writer. Um, yes, because it, it really boils down to the experience I had with James McPherson, um, that he was teaching me lessons about stereotypes and how you reach these conclusions based on the external, but it takes a little bit of work to see what's really before you. And and that was also the lesson I learned with um, Professor Homewood, that you can read things about people, but it's really not until you get beyond what you see initially that you um, get to the substance of what's at hand. Readers will um, learn towards the latter part of the book that you were um, reluctant to become a college professor, and yet here you are, an interim chair <laughs> and a tenured <laughs> associate professor. Yeah, th- things have gone wrong. <laughs> They've gone way off track. 
Um, you, no. can, you can, in fact, actually have both worlds, right? You can, in fact, be a writer and be a professor. It is pretty much what writers have to do if they um, want to live decently. Um, I, I would I walk away from the academy tomorrow. I've grown to love teaching, and I've developed amazing relationships with students, but uh, my first love is writing. And if I had to choose, I would choose the writing, but I don't have to choose, uh, thankfully. And I, I'm trying my best to pull it off to do both. You know, there, there's life is funny um, because I was thinking about this at the end of your your memoir. I was thinking um, Gerald Walker is the ideal teacher. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm like, how could how could you not? Um, want to teach. I, I, I was thinking, you know, if I were a student, I would love to be in your class. I would, I would love to take a writing class from you to, to just hear about these experiences, to have you, um, you know, coach me. I, and, but yet there was that, uh, that, that reticence, you know, one of those quirky things about life, I guess. Yeah, I never, I don't, uh, you know, my dad was a teacher and I'm, I'm not opposed to teaching. I just know that it is it takes a chunk of your time away from writing. And when I teach, I devote myself to teaching and 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 I ultimately I won't cheat my students out of anything. I end up cheating my 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 writing. And so um the first few years I taught at Bridgewater State, I couldn't get any writing done because I was teaching four sometimes five classes per semester. Mm-hmm. And that made me a very very bitter person. I was a fine teacher. My students did in fact enjoy my classes, but you didn't want to live with me during those years <laughs> because I was miserable because I could not get my writing done. And as I became um, more efficient in the classroom and figured out what I was doing, I could squeeze in more and more writing time. And now I think I've struck a good balance. I know at the beginning of this interview, I asked you to, to read early. Um, I was wondering if you could also um, read late um, to give us another excerpt from the book. Okay. Uh, Another short piece, this one's called Bullets. The pharmacist was an elderly black man whose hands trembled as much as mine. I watched the paper flutter as he held it close to his face, trying to read my writing, which was all but illegible in the true fashion of doctors. But I wasn't a doctor. I was just a 21-year-old unit clerk who forged prescriptions. I often wrote them for barbiturates, but I liked amphetamines most. They mimicked the high I got from cocaine, and they were easier to consume. Sometimes while at work, without missing a beat from the patient's labs I was filing, I'd just toss a few in my mouth and chew them like cashews. I couldn't do that with cocaine. And besides, cocaine was expensive and lasted only a few hours, whereas a bottle of dexedrine was relatively cheap and could last a week or more, depending, of course, on how many I prescribed. This was a felony, I understood, punishable by many years in Doctor's narcotics numbers I stole only once, and I never revisited the same pharmacy. I knew, too, that it was important to look like a respectable member of society, so I always wore a suit and tie, and sometimes I carried the Wall Street Journal. But these things cannot help you when your nose, raw from cocaine use, suddenly begins to bleed. The pharmacist had left by then to fill my order. He was 30 feet away, standing behind a glass partition and looking at rows and rows 
of shelves crammed with colorful bottles when a gush of liquid rushed over my lips and down my chin. This would be a bad one, I knew, as these kinds of bleeds often were, as persistent and messy as a gunshot to the temple. While I dug in my pocket for the tissue that I always carried for such an occasion, I tilted my head back, trying to keep the blood where it belonged. But all that did was redirect its descent so that now it trailed down both of my cheeks. I tore off two small pieces of Kleenex and stuffed them in each nostril, and then I used the rest of it to begin wiping my face and neck. Unfortunately, the pharmacist came back before I could finish. Good Lord, young man, are you all right? I put the bloody tissue in my jacket pocket and lowered my gaze from the ceiling to the old man, who was removing his glasses and looking very concerned. The thing to do here was run, but I had enough coke and alcohol in my system to make me think I could talk my way out of this, especially when I saw that he was holding the white bag containing my dexedrine. I leaned against the counter, hoping I looked casual, like some guy in a bar waiting for his martini except that my nostrils were clogged with paper and my face was smeared with blood. I opened my mouth to offer an explanation, but I'd lost my nerve. All that came out was, I'll be okay. The pharmacist nodded slowly, a gesture of sudden understanding. Can I see some identification, Mr. He put his glasses on and lifted the bag to his face. Mr. Jenkins. I patted my pockets, then pointed toward the door and said my wallet was in the car. As I backed away, he stood there, not moving, waiting for me to stop outside, perhaps, so he could reach for the phone to call the police. But if he intended to do so, I'd be long gone by the time they arrived, and all they'd find would be two pieces of tissue, small and bloodied, like bullets taken from a corpse. It is confirmed. Not only are you a excellent writer, you read extremely well. <laughs> <laughs> the two don't often go together, um, but but you you render your writing um, excellently. My favorite one, um, I just want to tell you, is um, one you've already spoken about, and it's. Um, the chapter called Disobedience in which you talk about uh, your mother mm-hmm. and her losing um, her eyesight and her um, second eye. And she's giving you a, a, you know, a directive to, you know, always obey your mother and recalls this story um, in which she was disobedient and, and what it cost her. But what I really like about, about this um, chapter, not, I, I like that, you know, this, uh, the reminiscences, and the way you render it, but also um, the way in which you bring the reader into the present moment of the storytelling in which your father has um, experienced a seizure and your brothers come in the house. I mean, it's, it's just wonderfully um, crafted and executed. And I had to pause after reading that just to, to let it sink in. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's an intense scene, I have to say. And my my mom was um, I told you I I read each chapter to her, and some of these chapters were difficult for her to hear. Uh, that one um, was one in particular. And sometimes the chapters were difficult because she didn't know this stuff. I mean, my my parents knew that their three of their kids, uh, three of their sons, were headed um, down the wrong path, and so we got in trouble, we got arrested, and these things they were aware of. But some of the stuff they never knew. 
And so I would I would read some of these chapters, and my uh, my my mother in particular would have to um, get off the phone for a bit and uh, let it let it sink in as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could imagine. Yeah, it's some shocking stuff for a parent who um, you don't want to know these things. But I have a niece who yeah told me that she was seeing me in a whole different light, and it was kind of disturbing for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I think that uh, memoirs should be thanked um, because it's it's challenging to um, write um, truth and to write what those inner thoughts and inner emotions that that we experience and to and to tell some things that are um, in our personal lives and in our family lives unspeakable. So I I, I want to thank you and, and commend you for your your brilliant book. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. We've been talking for about an hour, and I know you're a busy man, so I want to ask you what you're working on now. Um, now I'm working on a collection of essays uh, tentatively titled My Fear of the South and Other Confessions of a Native Son. <laughs> and, wow. And they're uh, just a bunch of essays about um, various epiphanies uh, I've had throughout life, uh, largely dealing with race. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gerald Walker. We enjoyed having you, and I think that everyone should go out and buy Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption, published by Bantam Press in 2010. Great. Thank you, Bersan. We've been discussing Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption with its author, Gerald Walker. And if you've listened to this entire interview, you already see why such prolific and well-known authors as Nikki Giovanni and James Allen McPherson call this book a must-read. Go out and get your copy today.